Optimism. Is it a matter of life and death? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Larry Dossey. Dr. Dossey is an internist and former chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital. He's published a number of books, including a New York Times bestseller, and his recent book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, was published by Random House last year. Dr. Dossey is past president of the Isthmus Institute of Dallas, an organization dedicated to exploring the possible convergences of science and religious thought. Dr. Dossey comes to us today from his office in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Larry, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Well, thanks, Dr. Cohen. It's nice for you to ask me. One of the more ordinary things, I guess, around, or maybe rare things, depending on how you look at it, is the concept of optimism. Now, you write extensively in your book about optimism. Of course, everybody says positive thinking is a good thing, but you take it a bit farther, and you say that it's so important that it could be a matter of life and death. Yes, I don't think that's an overstatement at all. I will confess that when I began to explore the clinical literature surrounding optimism, I was stunned. This turned out to be one of the most consistent areas of clinical research I know anything about. Uh, I was just shocked to find the number of studies that are out there showing the health virtues of optimism, which, you know, just don't show up in mainstream medical literature. You have to go hunting for it. But it presents a consistent picture, which is this. If people are optimistic, they have a lower incidence of most of the major diseases you want to name. They have a more stable cardiovascular system. They're less prone to cardiac arrhythmias. And they have a more robust and responsive immune system. It's beginning to look like optimism is a good deal more than just a feeling that floats around in the brain. It does seem to impact the major organ systems of the body. I think we ought to pay more attention to the virtues of optimism as physicians. And the data suggests that it helps you not just prevent illness and stay healthier, it also is a valuable thing even in people who are sick. I have followed the work of Dr. Dan Mark, who's a friend of mine at Duke Medical School, and he's shown that following coronary procedures, if people are optimistic about how they're going to do they have only one-third of the fatality rate following major coronary procedures than pessimists do. Wow, quite a difference. Well, it is. Dr. Nancy Fraser-Smith at the Montreal Heart Institute found something similar. She looked at patients who had congestive heart failure, and she found out that people who were optimistic about what they were going to do had only one-eighth the fatality rate over a three-year follow-up period compared to pessimists. So the pessimists had an eight-fold increase in risk of dying. You know, if this were another kind of risk factor that you could, you know, measure or hold in your hand, I think uh, doctors would really perk up about this. But we still have this naive idea that, you know, optimism is just a feeling. It doesn't do much. Well, you know, I think most of us would understand, and even, well, emotionally and intellectually, that that would have that much of an impact. I think we can understand and maybe even believe it, but I think I, as a physician, would come from the position that, well, that's great if you got it, but can you teach it? Can you learn it? Well, that's one of the focal points of the debate about optimism. I hear a lot of clinicians say, 
Larry, there's no point in bringing this up because you're either an optimist or a pessimist at birth. This is, you know, your God-given temperament, and that's just the way you are. Exactly. I think that that idea is indefensible. Dr. Martin Seligman is the past president of the American Psychological Association. I guess he's the, you call him the king of optimism training now. He's gotten quite famous for books such as Learned Optimism, which purport to actually teach people to convert from pessimism to optimism. I know this is against the grain of our thinking as doctors, but he has been able to teach adults and college kids and even children how to become more optimistic through specified training programs. These things are out there if people want to avail themselves of it, but I think of gone forever is the idea that this is just written in stone. I think people can change. I wonder if maybe we as docs contribute to people feeling pessimistic about stuff. Do you think we do? I mean, the way we interact, the words we use? Oh, Gary, I think we have great talent (laughs) for causing people to be really pessimistic about how they're going to do. Actually, I, over the years, made a list of things I hear physicians say that really disempower people and just sort of spin them into pessimism. I had a colleague who was always trying to get people to, you know, do the right thing, and he had this way of coming up with the most pessimistic statements to try to get people, for example, to have an operation or take their medicines. He would say, this is the worst example of this disease I've ever seen. (laughs) You know, you should have had surgery yesterday, or, you know, you're a walking time bomb, this kind of thing. This really doesn't cause people to be cheery or optimistic. I mean, these things really do disempower people. I think we're too flippant with that in medicine. For those of you who are just tuning in, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossey, and we're talking about optimism. So, Larry, we've talked about sort of some of the things we do inadvertently, some of the beliefs that we as physicians hold that may not be appropriate. Talk a little bit about the potted plant experiment. Yeah, this is one of my favorite clinical psychology experiments of all time. It was done by a couple of psychologists, Ellen Langer and Judith Roden, who really in later years became giants in the field of social psychology. Uh, They went into a nursing home. This was a huge nursing home, and they divided the nursing home residents into halves. One half was the control group for which it was just business as usual. They didn't have anything to do and nothing was particularly done to them. But this other group were given a little potted plant. I mean, this was not fancy. This was a sprig of ivy stuck in dirt and an ugly, cheap plastic pot. But what they told these nursing home people who got the ivy, look, you have a tremendous responsibility here. We're not going to take care of this plant for you. This is your task. If this sucker lives or dies, it's going to be because of what you did for it or didn't. And then they imbued them with a sense of uh, what they call self-efficacy. They told these residents, look, you can do this. We know you're up to this task. Well, then they just sort of sat back and saw how these two groups of people did. It didn't take long. After six weeks, the potted plant group pretty much stopped going on sick call. They stopped getting sick. They became more gregarious, uh, joining in activities more avidly. By the 18th month of this study, the death rate in the potted plant group had fallen by 50%. Wow. I don't know anything you can do to get the death rate in a nursing home down by 50%.
but just you know, charging these people up with this sense of self-responsibility and a sense of personal efficacy that what they did could really make a difference change something in these people. It's so amazing to hear some of these very simple and ordinary things, which obviously you have researched and you have a passion about. I suspect that your professional life as an internist, at least most of it, wasn't headed down these roads when you first started out. And I wonder if maybe you could share with us some of your professional background, how you got to learning and and being interested in these issues. Well, the definitive event in my life, which sort of made me pay attention to these low-tech uh, interventions was a personal medical illness, classic migraine headache with profound nausea, vomiting, headache. Worst thing was scotomas, partial blindness. In desperation in the early 70s, I chased all over the country when biofeedback first came out, learning how to do this for me, and it was my salvation. I had actually tried to drop out of medical school. This problem was so severe. Nothing worked except the imagery and the visualization and the profound relaxation that one learns working with these solid-state electronic gadgets that measure your skin temperature and muscle tension and so on. I mean, I was hooked on these low-tech, ordinary, simple, cost-free things uh, from that day forward. It really saved my profession. Do you think that medical students or even residents today are getting any information or any training or any mindset about these kinds of interventions with their patients? Well, I think they are. You know, back when I was in medical school in the 60s, you couldn't use the word meditation. Relaxation was just not even in the vocabulary. The stress response was just beginning to be talked about. You know, now it's in the air. I think most of the young medical students don't struggle with this nearly as much as we did. Aside from that, you know, 50% of the medical school classes now are made up of young women. And I think women temperamentally are much more open than most young men are toward these issues. And I think that's made a difference in the way the profession looks at these things. Somewhat related to this issue of optimism, in my mind at least, was your discussion about novelty and doing new things. And I think you coined a few words to describe the love for doing that and then the fear of doing that. Could you just share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, I learned a couple of new words in looking at the literature surrounding the health value of doing new things. Neophobia, I found out, is the fear of new things. Neophilia is the love of new things. A lot of this comes out of animal research. For some time now, animal behaviorists have worked with a strain of rats. Some of these rats will not run new mazes. And then the other rats will take to them avidly as if they enjoy the new experience. So here you have neophobes and neophiles <laughs> and a rat population. And the difference for us, I think, we ought to pay attention to is that the rats who just jump into the novel maze and run it avidly live about half again as long as the rats who avoid new experiences and new mazes. Now, if you try to jack that up to the human level and ask if, if there's any correlation at our level, I think the answer turns out to be yes. In one study of 13,000 women, women who took on new experiences in terms, for example, of reading novels, of reading mysteries, and who played board games which uh, were new to them, if they solved crosswords, in other words, if they exposed themselves to new experiences that were mentally challenging on a daily basis, 
these women statistically preserved their mental faculties and their cognitive awareness much better as they got older compared to the women who did not seek out novel experiences. I think that this is just a hugely important finding toward our concept of healthy aging. This really should be emphasized, I think, a good deal more than it is. I think novelty is good for us. Well, you know, Larry, I appreciate you taking the time to sharing with us, our audience here, the healing power of a number of ordinary things that we normally wouldn't think about. I want to thank Dr. Larry Dossie, who's been our guest. We've been discussing optimism and uh, whether it's a matter of life and death. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.